It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I am speaking with Alex Fink. And one of the reasons I was really interested in this conversation is because his PR person that pitched him to me started off the email talking about how a balanced diet is part of a healthy lifestyle. Of course, many of us know that, but not many of us think about how a balanced information diet is important to our lives. And there was a quote from Alex in this pitch that said, when it comes to health and well-being, what you put in your head is just as important as what you put in your mouth. And I couldn't agree more. I've talked about over the last few months how I stepped back from social media usage and Alex specifically TikTok, which was a really challenging thing for me to do because I spent the last two, three years using TikTok so much. And I found a big benefit with it. Actually, I enjoyed a lot of the information I was getting from TikTok, but I could feel that it wasn't quite as balanced as I would like. It did seem to be influencing my mental health. So I decided at the beginning of this year in 2023 that I was going to pause all personal social media usage. I deleted the apps off my phone and didn't have a timeline. And it's been about three months since I did that, and it has made a profound shift And I'm curious to start off with that conversation with you because it seems like social media is a major way that many of us get information these days. So perhaps we can start there and then expand to other types of media that you focus on in your work. Yeah, I would actually say every type of media today gets monetized by maximizing the number of clicks and views that they get from you. And so they're all trying to grow the share of the pie that they get out of your time. So TikTok has been very efficient at it. And that's why you happen to have the problem with TikTok. But that problem can happen with any type of media. There was a study, I think, in 2013, where they compared people who were at the Boston Marathon bombing and actually witnessed the bombing to people who watched six hours of media coverage or more of the bombing. And the people who watched the news coverage were more likely to have PTSD. So Every type of media could be bad if you overdose on it. My mouth is wide open. I grew up in Massachusetts, so when that bombing happened, it it impacted me in a big way without even being there. And this is an interesting thing I've never heard before about the news coverage side of things, which to move over to that for a moment or, or completely switch directions is something else I've been thinking a lot about. My mother, who spends most of her time in Massachusetts still, she consumes so much news media, not as much social media, but I've noticed over the years developed a lot of fear, a lot of concern. And I've noticed since I've stepped away from social media as a whole, I dabble in it for my work, but on my personal life, I barely use it. 
And I noticed how my fear got greatly reduced. The question came up, is her fear heightened because she's being manipulated, because she's over-consuming content? Is that part of the media's way of monetizing, as you mentioned? Or is she just taking in more information and more aware than me, who's, I'm much more in a place of ignorance than I used to be. I don't actually know current events as much because I'm not on social media where I used to consume so much. So I think we're on two different extremes. And I'm curious, like, is one extreme better than the other? (laughs) Or do you need to truly find a balance so that you're not on either end of the extreme? So I'm definitely in favor of balance, but I could say that if you have to choose between these extremes, being ignorant is probably better. But I don't think you have to go to that extreme. I think it is possible to construct a healthy diet where you treat every type of information that you consume as a type of food, right? You don't want to eat eight pounds of carrots in one sitting. Carrots might be good for you, but eight pounds of them, probably not so much. So everything has a place to some extent. I think even social media might be useful to some extent, but you have to put boundaries on it. And my personal boundary with that has been, so my addiction of choice was YouTube, not TikTok. But at some point, I just decided that as long as the YouTube algorithm determines what I'm going to see next, I will keep getting addicted. So I had to actually go through my account and clean out my entire history, delete every single like, every single subscription, every single video in my history. And now when I go to YouTube, everything that it proposes to me is completely useless to me. It's not interesting. So that actually forces me to search for something if I want to watch it. And that's the best filter. That way I don't consume too much of it. That makes a lot of sense. And the first thing I think of, but it's not as fun to use these platforms. I mean, TikTok, for example, just like YouTube, they're basing your past behavior or using your past behavior to create an algorithm to keep you on there longer. And it's very satisfying because you feel like these platforms know you. I mean, that's what drew me into TikTok over time is I felt like it knows what I like. I don't have to put in as much effort. I can just lay down on the couch or the bed and just scroll. And my brain is getting all these dopamine hits and it feels really good. And since I stepped away from that, I've actually noticed how much my brain was craving that, just like an addiction. I went through a withdrawal period. And now if I use TikTok, again, very, very infrequently, I'm usually not logged into my personal account anymore. And you're absolutely right. It's a whole different experience. I don't like it as much, so I don't spend as much time on there. It's truly only going there to find something specific and then leaving, which is not what these apps want you to do. (laughs) They want you to have that experience of feeling like they know you and giving you so much of what you like. But I think many users are unaware of how that's impacting their brain. And again, food is a perfect analogy here. The same thing happened with food, where at some point, food companies started becoming better and better at making packaged foods that are addictive. They have more sugar, more fat, more salt, all the different things that tickle just the right parts of our brain that we end up overconsuming them, right? But in the past 40 or 50 years, people have become more aware of this. And now we're actually trying to pay attention. We're not very good at it, but at least we're trying. And so I think we need to just start doing the same thing with information. So social media is one example. I think just about everybody has that weakness, right? But I think other types of information have the same effect. And being 
overly informed with regards to the news is just as bad in some sense, right? Let's say there is a war going on. There happens to be one in Eastern Europe right now. The front line tends to move once every month or so. Right? There is a big counteroffensive and then something happens. Do you need to read news about it every day? Probably not, right? There are no news about it. I see the same thing with U.S. politics. How often is there an actual event worth reading about in U.S. politics? Once every few months, perhaps? Most of the time when you open the news and you read something about U.S. politics, it's somebody disagreed with something that somebody else said about somebody else. It's this kind of meta on meta on meta on meta. It's not real news. Nothing actually happened. Or somebody responding to a poll about an election that will happen two years from now. Well, maybe a week before the election, a poll is useful information. Today, the polls are useless and people's reactions to the polls, they're not news either, right? But news organizations print it, we consume it, and therefore advertisers get to sell stuff. That's how the entire system works. I think people have to learn how to extricate themselves out of it. Otherwise, somebody else owns our brain, essentially. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase, someone else owning your brain, but that is one of the reasons without even fully articulating that way that I stepped back from social media. And while there have been mostly benefits to it, a drawback that I'm, or I think it's a drawback, actually, I'm still trying to figure it out for myself, is that I don't feel as informed. Generally, I'm not someone that watches TV or news on TV. I watch TV for pleasure, like TV shows, but I don't watch the news a lot. And I don't seek out reading the news. I subscribe to some newsletters that give me news summaries, but most days I don't have the energy to read those or they're not important to me. Like you're pointing out, unless there's something specific I'm looking for, trying to pay attention to, most days of the year, I am going about my personal life. And in a way, that's like going back to the way things used to be before the internet became so prevalent in our lives, right? It's it's that you would hear information from people in your life. You would talk to people. And that's been my experience over the last three or four months is I don't even know the current events. Like a recent one in March 2023 was another shooting, a school shooting in Nashville. And I heard about it maybe 12 or 24 hours later versus when I was on social media, I would hear about it right after it happened. And that's what I'm reflecting on is to be in a little bit of a place of ignorance and wondering what are the pros and cons of that ignorance? Is it important for me to be aware of what's happening in the world or is the media conditioning us to think that we need to know everything that's happening everywhere all the time? I think the answer is yes on both questions, but that's why you need a balance. There is a trade-off between those two. So I can definitely think of events where knowing what's about to happen or what is brewing somewhere in the world might affect your decisions, right? And in that case, the person who knows definitely has an advantage. Like I can use my own personal example. My parents decided to leave the Soviet Union in 1990 when problems were brewing in the region that we lived in. And several months after we left, a war started. There's an even better example. I have a marketing person working for me now who actually left Ukraine on the night from February 23rd to February 24th, like two hours before the border closed. So that's the benefit that you get from being informed, right? 
certain types of information save your life. But if you're informed about everything all the time, well, most of the information that you're getting is probably not going to save your life. I don't think information about somebody's reaction to a poll in Washington, D.C. is saving anybody's life. That's information porn. It's not information, right? You can't act on it. And so we need some sort of a balance. I think reading a newsletter once a day or using an app once a day, especially if it's an app like the one that I happen to run where you can tell it in advance, I want to read this many articles per day, right? That's my quota. That's useful, right? It's not trying to monopolize your time. It's just trying to give you the product that you asked for, which is get me up to date on what happened in the past 24 hours. But once you go beyond that, it's okay, I guess, if you really enjoy it. But the question is, are you enjoying it or is it more like an addiction? And that's a question everybody has to ask themselves. So I've been defining myself as an information junkie for a very long time because I really enjoy reading way more than I actually need to know. I've been sort of okay with it until I met this YouTube algorithm that started really getting me into these weird rabbit holes that I didn't want to go in. And so even I had my limits, right? But some people might, maybe their limit is different. And that's something that everybody has to decide for themselves. Among other, other things, news is just one type of information. And social media, or what happened recently, is just one type of information you can consume. You can read books that were written 2,000 years ago and are still true now. Right? So how do you allocate your time between these two things? The timely versus the timeless. That's a trade-off too. If you're consuming a lot of timely stuff, then maybe you could learn more, that, more stuff that is useful to you today by reading Aristotle. Just an idea. I'm not saying in particular Aristotle is the go-to guy, right? but maybe he's more important or more useful to your life today than a poll that happened in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that was a, another big benefit. I found my reading books specifically went way up because the time I used to spend on social media, there was this gap in my day all of a sudden, multiple gaps. Because I would turn to social media anytime I was bored, anytime I wanted to take a break from work, sometimes just after I woke up or went to bed. I mean, it just, that's when I knew it was becoming an issue for me. It was just that filler in all of these gaps of time throughout my day. And my schedule completely shifted. And now I read for 30 minutes to an hour every morning. That's one of the first things that I do. And I'm taking in information that I find truly beneficial. And it books just the way most of them are written. They feel very well thought out. They feel oftentimes researched, depending on the type of book that you're reading. I also started reading more fiction instead of nonfiction to get some of the mental health benefits that come along with reading stories and not paying attention to information collecting all of the time. And in terms of your wonderful product and website, Other Web, I told you earlier how I started experimenting with it last night. And one thing I really appreciated was that you can choose how many articles you're seeing per day. And I brought it all the way down to the minimum. I think it was 10 <laughs> because... Yeah, that's a bit extreme, but... <laughs> <laughs> it is, right? I mean, I'm new, so I've still got to figure this out. But that was an interesting thing to notice is that I wanted the least amount of information possible each day because right now I'm pressed if I read it one article a day because it's just not part of my habit. Your point, though, of staying informed for 
safety, for awareness, for compassion for others, just to truly be informed for the global reasons and your personal reasons, I would like to get my balance a little bit more towards that edge versus coming back from this extreme that I've been on for the last few months. Your website was really encouraging for that. I also like the simplicity of it. So on other web, one of the ways that you describe it is that you can read the news and look up the latest studies. It's free, ad-free, and junk-free. Now, free means you're not paying to use it, which is incredible. Ad-free means that you're not displaying ads to monetize it. What do you mean by junk-free? So the way that the idea actually started was we didn't know initially that what we want to build is a platform or an app. We just wanted a way to figure out how to evaluate content and how to filter out the bottom 90%. Because most content out there is complete and utter rubbish. There's no reason to consume it whatsoever. I mentioned before, somebody said something about what somebody else said about something else. That's actually relatively good as far as the news industry goes. Because occasionally I would open Google News and it would show me an article from CNN titled, Stop What You're Doing and Watch This Elephant Play With Bubbles. That's an actual CNN article. I'm not making this up. They do whatever they can to get clicks these days, right? They have quotas to meet. They have pressure. So we wanted a way to filter that stuff out. And I teamed up with a friend here in Austin who has a PhD in natural language processing. He does a lot of work and trading on Wall Street that is kind of unrelated, but he knows how to analyze language. And so we started creating AI models. We just trained to detect a particular bad trait that content might have. Like, let's say, a clickbait headline. That's a pretty well-defined trait. We can all recognize it, right? Headline doesn't match the body and uses words that are meant to attract attention. So we taught the model to detect those with relatively high confidence, almost as good as a human editor. But unlike a human editor, it never has bad days and doesn't have an upper limit on how many articles it can process, right? So we created about 20 of those and we created a nutrition label for each article just based on the text of the article. And then... Once we rolled it out as a free product to the world, we saw that people don't really use it consistently because it's a nice novelty. Everybody gives us good feedback. Everybody enjoys it. And then they stop doing it because it's an extra click when they consume the news. That's when we decided to create a platform that now uses this as a filter to push the junk out. Which seems really generous of you. So my follow-up to that is how do you make this worth your time? Because A, are you monetizing? If you're not making ad revenue, as most websites do, if you don't have a membership fee involved, how do you justify the time and resources that you put into this? And are you monetizing it at all? Not yet. So the typical approach of startups in Silicon Valley, and this actually applies to the TikToks and Instagrams and YouTubes of the world as well, right? It was first build something the users really like, figure out why they like it and how they use it and then figure out how to monetize it without scaring the users away, right? And so this is the approach we've been taking. We have some angel investors, and I put some of my own money as an angel investor into this. And now we are raising funds from our users, essentially, on WeFunder, which is a crowdfunding platform under XCF. It's SEC regulated, and it allows people to invest as little as $100 and get equity at the end, right? So that will get us through the growth phase until... We get enough users that we actually understand how people use it and how we can monetize without ruining the experience for them. I think what a lot of 
startups do wrong is they try to monetize too early and they decide, okay, I'm going to be a subscription service. Well, great. You're probably going to grow much slower because only subscribed users can share content and then only subscribed users can open the links that somebody who is subscribed just sent to them, right? So I think it makes much more sense to try to keep it free and ad-free for as long as possible. And then once we get to the point where we really understand our user base well, we can start gradually doing small-scale experiments of, let's say we add advertising only on the search results after somebody highlighted a piece of text and clicked on it to learn more. Let's see if that scares those users away. Experiment on a thousand people. That works well? Great. Roll it out to everybody. So that's kind of our plan with regards to monetizing. I think we will start playing with advertising probably in about six months. But until then, let's just keep it pristine. Let's make sure people love it. Let's make sure people share it. Let's make sure they get value out of it. Then let's interview them and figure out what that value is. Because I'm not sure that I am entirely representative of our users either, right? In fact, we already see kind of a almost bifurcation of our users into information junkies, which is a group that I belong to. And people who are closer to where you are right now, who essentially checked out of the news and said, I will never read this again. But now they're coming back gradually and saying, if this is what the news looked like, I might give it a try. So we'll see which of those groups is going to be larger by the end of it. I still don't know. Maybe we have to almost maintain two versions of the product for these two. Thank you for sharing the the insider look. I'm always fascinated how startups operate and understand that it's really challenging to turn a passion, a personal interest, a purpose like you have into something that's sustainable. Because whether we like it or not, we live in a capitalistic society. We need to make money to live, to sustain ourselves, our families. And I think many of us understand that, but it's a tricky thing to do with a product like yours because I think many people are used to getting information for free. And yet what we've come to these days with the internet is a lot of people are unaware of how the monetization is happening. Most people don't understand how ads work, how these websites are making money off them. They don't understand manipulations. Obviously, biases can happen. I've known this for a long time as a content creator and feeling a bit unsettled in some of the monetization situations that I've ended up in as a creator where I want to make money, but I also don't want to compromise the community that I've built, the audience, the people that I care about who are the reason I'm doing something in the first place. So it's finding that balance. And for you, well, it seems like a major part of the reason you created Other Web was to help people with something that they might not have even realized they were struggling with and to begin with, that's maybe group A, or they have a problem they don't know how to address. And then the other people who are saying, I want information, but there's no safe place to get it. And I would imagine that second group would be willing to pay. I mean, even as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking if there was a small fee for something and I knew that my privacy was being looked after, which is becoming more important. I knew that I wasn't being manipulated. I think ultimately I would rather pay whatever a small amount ideally would be per month or per year to feel like I'm caring for myself, much like I would spend money 
on other parts of my health. I mean, we spend money, we make a decision about a food product, as you brought up. But I think there needs to be this cultural shift to remind people that we need to spend money to care for our information consumption. And maybe there's just not a lot of awareness yet so that people value it enough to pay for it. Are you finding this? Is this part of your research as a company to figure out how do you get people to value something that they're used to getting for free? Well, so there's several different things that I want to address in what you just said. Let's start with the last one of getting people to understand that this is important. I think we have to look at it almost like when Whole Foods were starting in the 80s, right? You have to create awareness that A, there is a problem and B, that a better way exists. And maybe you can never reach the entire market, right? Maybe you can only address, we tend to call it the people who care about what they put into their brain. It's a subset of the population. It's not everybody. But once we actually create something better for them and they appreciate it and like it and use it and share it, that sends a signal to the rest of the ecosystem that this matters. People care about it. And just like today, you suddenly see organic foods at Walmart. Walmart didn't used to carry organic foods, right? There was no reason for it until somebody showed them that this kind of product has good margins, right? Then I hope that we will start seeing better information on Facebook and TikTok and Twitter too. So that's one aspect of it where I think we have to create almost, I don't want to say a Trojan horse, right? But we need to create one example that shows to the world that this works for it to affect the rest of the ecosystem. Now I want to address the ecosystem in general because I think you touched upon a very important point. It's not the ad itself that creates a problem, I think. Ads are annoying. None of us like them. But they're not really a major problem. We know how to scroll past them. But the real problem occurs when the person creating the content creates different content because it needs to be monetized with ads, right? That is evil for lack of a better, like if you look at it, it's not that the person is evil, everybody's following their incentives, right? But for the ecosystem as a whole, it creates something evil in the world. It creates things like clickbait, which otherwise would not exist. And so that's the part that we really need to address. But again, to create different incentives for the creator and for the distributor companies like Google or Facebook, right? We have to create some way in which higher quality content pays better. And it cannot just be cost per click times number of clicks. It needs to be times the factor of the people who filtered this stuff out, for example, which is a proxy for content quality. And maybe over time, we can get a closer proxy and actually put a factor in that formula that says content quality, as opposed to just, and 20% of people will not see it, right? But right now, what we are able to do is just the 20% of people will not see it. If we grow to 20% of the market and 20% of the market cuts clickbait out, suddenly there's much less incentive to create clickbait and much more incentive to create something that doesn't get filtered out. So I think that's the odd game that we're playing. And you're right, it's really hard to balance these things out. In fact, we made the unusual choice of registering as a public benefit corporation because as a C-Corp, you actually can't put mission above making money, right? Your entire reason for existing legally as a C-Corp is maximizing shareholder value. That's the only thing you have a fiduciary duty to. And we wanted to have a duty to something else that we can balance against that, which in our case is improving the quality of information that people consume. And so we had to register as something other than a C-Corp to write both of those things in our bylaws. We also made the choice to open most of our algorithms 
so that they're source available. So people can actually look at them and see what we're doing and see what data sets we train them on. That's a non-trivial choice. I'm still not sure it's the correct one, but we felt like we have to do it because otherwise, how can we tell people we're not biased? We're not just trying to give you only the left side of the aisle or only the right side of the aisle. If we want them to trust us, then we have to kind of open up the kimono and show them everything. So that's what we did. It's kind of an odd minefield that we're running through, but I think it's doable. I think so too. And it's not only doable, it's really important. One thing I've learned over the last few years while growing my awareness and acknowledging my own biases is that I need to step outside of my bubble and realize like there's other people experiencing things vastly different than mine. And that doesn't make either one of us better or worse. And I think that as a society, we've been conditioned to take sides and to align with people who are like us. And I think it's a natural human tendency. There's all sorts of reasons historically why we do this. But if we can work on staying more open-minded and stretching beyond our comfort zones and doing things like looking at the quote other side politically, I want to be more informed, even if I don't align with a viewpoint or a politician, I would still like to try to understand it because I value those people as human beings. And as we see in the U.S., sometimes we have people in our government that we don't agree with, but we're voting on them and we're choosing to live in a country that values the majority of the votes. And so if we want to live in a place like this, we have to make room in our heads and our hearts for different perspectives. Otherwise, it's going to feel too chaotic. It's going to feel too ununified. And I think when it comes to the news, like that was something that I was trying to take into consideration with your site. You and I had talked about how certain websites I probably wouldn't normally read (laughs) because I've got these preconceived notions that the content on that website is not for me. Their viewpoints are not in alignment with mine. But one thing I really liked about my first experience with other web is I went on there, I searched for something. There's like a preference bar. So for the listener that hasn't checked out other web yet, there's an app and there's the website version. I'm right now talking about the website version and you, you can toggle these little preferences And it was really fun to toggle them and see what results came up and then look at the nutrition label for each of them and say like, huh, like, is this information they're sharing different from the other sources that are coming up? That was a fascinating experiment to go into very open to the information versus if I just went to CNN.com, for example, which has been like my main news source for many years. I like being presented with other sources instead of just looking at what I'm used to. I think we used to have sources that we can trust more or less, but at this point, all the sources that we have are compromised just to differing extents, right? You can think of it as a bell curve. And of course, the sources that are on the right are better than the sources that are on the left in the bell curve, right? The ones that score higher are better. Great. But the entire bell curve is shifting. And that's kind of the bad news. And so the more it is shifting, the more we have to come up with some way to adjust. And our approach has been, let's just pay attention to the content of the article. Let's not even have a concept of 
right wing or left wing in the other web. Um, in fact, we at some point developed a special NLP filter, natural language processing filter, that tries to detect the bias of the article and tell us whether it's a right wing writer or a left wing writer. And we decided not to deploy it and not to reflect that information anywhere because we just didn't even want to taint the platform with that level of information, right? We want to gather from the entire spectrum and just filter based on objectively definable traits like, is the headline clickbait? Is the language relatively objective or relatively subjective? Does this use hateful phrases or words? Things we can define objectively regardless of right or left. And our hope is that most readers will enjoy the fact that it's kind of balanced. They read the best articles from Fox or the Washington Examiner and the best articles from CNN or MSNBC, et cetera. They don't just read one or the other. What we filter out is the bottom, not the right or the left. But we still give you the controls to disable particular sources. And so if you insist on going in there and disabling Fox and disabling the Washington Examiner, disabling New York Post, et cetera, then you will still be able to recreate the left-wing bubble on the other web. We just don't think it's that good because generally speaking, in an environment that has this much noise, the only true information is the one both sides agreed on. Chances are if the left tells you something and the right doesn't say it or vice versa, it's arguable at best. It's actually very hard to see something that is objectively, obviously true, only stated by one of the two sides. It happens, but it's pretty rare. One thing that I'm not familiar with yet on OtherWeb, based on my short time that I've spent on there thus far, was how do you define offensive? Because I saw that, I think it came up under Fox News, <laughs> which was something I expected. I mean, my bias is to think that Fox News is going to offend me. And I'm trying not to assume that anymore, but I'm still in that mentality. So when it came up, I I think it was Fox. I could have been wrong. But even the fact that my memory believes it to be Fox is interesting. Whatever source it was, I saw the little nutrition label flag for offensive language. And I was almost surprised because these were all big publications. And I was wondering, what is the criteria for offensive when these sites are not like blog posts that anybody can write without editing? These are sites that have some sort of editing involved, I imagine. So how do you define offensive? Even though they have some editing involved, it seems like the editorial standards, they are much more relaxed than they used to be. So it is pretty normal today for some publication to write about how a politician of the side they disagree with is a liar. That's an offensive word to call somebody a liar, right? So we treat the word offensive in its kind of literal sense. Do these words offend the people that they just referred to? Right. So it's not, does it offend your sensibility? But if they describe somebody in offensive terms, we all have a pretty clear idea what that means, what offensive terms are. To be even more specific, we used an academic data set. We did not create our own for this particular filter. So I can find who assembled the data set, which university and kind of defer to that. But yeah, our view of offensiveness is the most literal sense you can have. If you say something offensive about another person, then the article is offensive. I should note, and this is more on the introspective side of things, that this particular filter we have is not context aware. So if you have an article that quotes somebody saying an offensive thing about something else, we will actually mark the article as containing offensive material, even though it could be that the journalist is lamenting the fact that somebody has been saying offensive things, right? 
So we're not aware of that context, or at least that filter is not aware of that context. That's a feature we want to add in the future. But still, you would provide a trigger warning if somebody was quoted as saying something that deserves a trigger warning, right? So we kind of do the same thing with offensive language. Thank you for explaining that. It's so appealing to me. I'm really looking forward more and more to spending more time there, maybe experimenting with a daily habit of reviewing other web each day to integrate back into information in a way that works for me. And one thing I'd like to return back to is the subject of clickbait, because as you were speaking about it, I was thinking how there is a big difference between journalism and content creation and the social media or even just the broad media sense, whereas we're in a nice time where anybody can create content, whether that's a written blog, some websites will receive articles from anybody. It's very easy to get your opinion heard. But there's a difference between a journalist who has studied something, has been graded on it, shaped, and even is adhering to a certain amount of ethics, whatever those ethics may be. But journalism as a whole has values in place and training to get certain credentials. I guess anybody could call them a journalist. I, at one point, used that word for myself because I didn't know what else to call myself. You know, I didn't want to be called a blogger or whatever words were used in the past. And I also don't like the term influencer. I think that's a, an odd terminology that we've become so used to because if you examine it, it's basically saying you have the power to influence somebody to buy or you have the power to influence somebody to make a decision and kind of rubs me the wrong way because there's not a lot of ethical code of conduct, if any. I mean, as you're pointing out with clickbait, we know that offensive things get people's attention. Outrage gets people's attention. There are studies done on how negativity performs better online and how, as you alluded to earlier with the study you shared about the Boston Marathon bombing, how it's really impacting our mental health when we're paying attention to a lot of negativity. And yet, the content creators are literally rewarded through money and fame to be as offensive and negative and controversial as possible because that allows them to get higher up in the hierarchies and make more money. And so there is an ethical issue there that I've had a problem with for a long time. I don't want to be rewarded for manipulating people or I don't even want to necessarily influence people in those ways. And I'm curious about your standpoint and maybe any more research that you've come across and how we could try to change the state of things so that you're not being rewarded for persuading people in a negative way. So I think the problem is actually slightly worse than what you just described in that I've spoken to probably somewhere between 200 and 250 journalists so far in my other web journey. And one motif that I keep hearing over and over again is, I wrote a good article with a good headline and the editor changed it to be clickbait. That happens all the time. In most publications, the editor is the one that gets rewarded or penalized based on the amount of eyeballs they got. The journalist doesn't really see the economics. They're just trying to follow their code of conduct, as you said. But very often what they write gets changed. So that's one part of the issue. The other part of the issue that also makes it worse than what you just described is that often journalism is a competition. 
whoever writes about the story first gets more eyeballs than whoever writes about the story 15th, let's say. And so if you have more and more, whether it's content creators, self-publishers, whatever name you might want to use, if you have more of those people publishing things faster and earlier without checking them in the most stark terms possible and attracting a lot of attention, that creates a lot of pressure on the legacy publications to loosen their standards. And so you're seeing this all the time, right? CNN does this, Washington Post does this, New York Times does this. How often did you see big stories broken with a single anonymous source in the past six or seven years? Happens all the time. Try to find a story that was broken with a single anonymous source 20 years ago, other than Watergate. That was pretty much the only one, maybe the Pentagon Papers, but there was a lot of verification before that thing was published, right? Just because a single anonymous source, that's unheard of. You don't publish stories like that unless it is really critical for the public to know. And then you might spend four or five months preparing that story. But today that's commonplace. Almost every day you see stories in existing legacy publications that we all know and respect with a single anonymous source. Why? Where did double sourcing go? Everybody still learns it in journalism school. They just can't afford it anymore. The ethical standard exists, but it's too costly to actually employ in real life most of the time because they have to compete with BuzzFeed. That's kind of where the story becomes worse than just the content creators facing these kind of incentives. Everyone does. And I think the only way to fix the system is to change the incentives. And we have to do that by giving people the tools to filter content in a better way. And maybe one day we can even give advertisers tools to filter out the content that they get advertised on. And maybe you don't want your ad for Nike appearing on a clickbait article. Maybe that doesn't bode well for Nike. Or maybe you're okay with it, but you're willing to pay less for it per click. That would also be okay, as long as there's some incentive to write better articles because Nike pays less to appear on them. Then I think we have a selective pressure to improve the content quality. Because right now we have a population of memes with a single selective pressure, clicks and views. There's no other selective pressure. And so evolution does its thing. Everything just drifts towards clickbait. At the risk of filibustering for too long, I want to address one more thing that you mentioned, which is that anybody can get published and be heard today. It's true. And in fact, there's only one other historic parallel to this, where publishing got democratized in the 1430s because of the printing press. We went from the church essentially having a monopoly on publishing to almost anybody can set up a printing press and start publishing books. And you started seeing more and more things get published all over Europe. And we all regard that as a very good thing. But we shouldn't forget that the 200 years following that invention were inquisitions, witch hunts, and 52 different religious wars all over Europe. And then you get the scientific method, you get peer review, and you get the enlightenment, right? But it took us 200 years to figure out the transition from that invention. And they were really bloody, right? Just the witch hunts alone. I think the data that I've seen is 80,000 women were burned at the stake or, or hung. So that's some pretty big ramifications I would like to avoid now. How do we do that? That's what we're trying to do, to create some tools that resemble the scientific method or peer review for today's big democratization of publishing, which is the internet. 
I'm so grateful that you've addressed all this and and backed it up with your research too. I mean, you're proving in this moment how useful that is. And, And that's something else that really surprised me when I started digging into social media. And actually the impetus for me pausing, deleting all the apps was doing some reading and research and feeling a bit horrified of what I learned about how social media algorithms work currently and how TikTok specifically is changing so much. I mean, I've been heavily involved in social media as my career since 2009 or 10. And there was a lot of positivity. I benefited from the democratization that you're mentioning. It felt really good. I came from a background in film production where there were so many barriers to creative expression. There were so many times where I felt like I had to struggle to be heard and seen. And YouTube was a massive door that was opened for me to express myself, to communicate, to build community. I mean, there were so many benefits in the beginning. You touched upon one word that started to give me pause and did not feel so good is when I started to see the competitive landscape change with social media. Because in the early days, it felt like there was an equality there. There wasn't a lot of advertising. Facebook, for example, was a platform you would go to connect with people. Like the social side of social media was really there. And then the shift started happening where it started to become so competitive. Like you had to craft everything you did in a way that no longer felt as authentic. And over the past 10 years, I've seen that just become more and more extreme. Even podcasting, I'm very committed to keeping this podcast authentic. It's not a monetization source for me generally. Occasionally, monetization opportunities come up on the show that I align with, I'll say yes to. Some are even a little iffy, I'll be honest. Like Sometimes I'm like, hmm, this doesn't feel 100%, but it's good enough and I can generate income here. But there's a pressure as a podcaster to write your titles a certain way, to have your website and graphics look a certain way, to market it. And that doesn't feel fully in alignment with my values and ethics, Alex. And I imagine you come up against that with the developments with other web. And I'm curious, how do you plan to stay as closely aligned with your values and ethics and mission statement, given that right now, I personally don't see a lot of ways to monetize without some sort of compromise. I'm curious if you do. And when you're talking about like reinventing things, like what are the possibilities? Do we even know them yet? Are they yet to be revealed? How hopeful do you feel about them right now so that the ethics and money can be in sync with each other? Yeah, I think we know the broad outlines and we know what experiments we need to run. But actually, we started this discussion from the food analogy. So I think what you just described sounds a lot like every single packaged food manufacturer figures out that adding more sugar gets their food to be sold better, right? And so they add more and more sugar. And by the end of it, everything is saturated with sugar. And even somebody who wants to create a good quality product they feel pressure to add sugar to their product because it would sell better, right? That's kind of the broad analogous scenario to what you just described. So here comes the other web. We just remove the sugar out of everything. Is it going to sell just as well? Probably not. We have to figure out what to replace it with. 
probably, because if you just take a cookie and remove the sugar, it's cardboard. It's not good anymore. You have to at least put some erythritol back. And so right now we're experimenting. We're trying to figure out what that erythritol is, I guess. I'm sorry, I'm eating keto myself. So that doll is on the back of my mind. So <laughs> I'm on a keto diet too. So I'm with you on this analogy. And my question then becomes, given that you and I both have done keto, my palate had to change. So it's not just the companies that are responsible for these changes, but the consumer itself. Like I had to train myself to first going through sugar withdrawals and realize, huh, I don't mind eating a sugar-free diet, but it took me time to get there. Do you feel like that same thing is happening? It's not just your responsibility with OtherWeb. It's my responsibility as a viewer of OtherWeb to get used to what you're creating and realize the benefits for myself. Well, I think it's your responsibility to even select us in the first place, right? And so obviously, there is some effort required from the consumer to pay attention to what they put into their brain. But the question is, how much effort? How complicated is it? And it was probably very difficult to follow a healthy keto diet in the 1960s. After Atkins, it became easier. And today, it's really easy. You go into any store. I walk into Sprouts. Every single shelf has a keto product on it. In fact, the difficult thing right now is to figure out which of the keto products are actually real healthy keto and which ones are dirty keto. And they're just writing it because they minimize the, the number of nut carbs to five or something, right? But that's not real keto. Anyway, that's just going on a tangent. But my point is effort is always going to be required if the consumer wants to get rid of an addiction. Actually, I want to go back to something that you said probably five or six questions ago that really stuck with me. You mentioned that it felt like when you were on TikTok and other social media, you had gaps in your day. Did you notice that language? There's one type of people and one type of people only that uses this kind of language, right? It's addicts. It doesn't matter what the addiction is. That is the language they use, right? Alcohol causes gaps in your day. Porn addiction causes gaps in people's days. Gambling addiction, heroin addiction, all of those, they all describe it as a gap in their day. And so that is very telling what Silicon Valley has been doing for the past 15 years at least is using the addiction mechanism, using dopamine reinforcement cycles, right? There's books written about it. I think Nereals is the best one, right? But there's a lot of them. There's a lab at Stanford dedicated to this specifically, right? And a lot of the people who work for social media companies in Silicon Valley come out of that lab. It's actually almost bizarre that the company that has been the best at getting us addicted is Chinese and doesn't come out of Stanford because I thought Stanford was the best at it, but it seems like kind of like with fentanyl, the Chinese figured it out even better. But yeah, it is an addiction that people have to make an effort to step out of. But I want to make that effort manageable. If it's like going keto in the 1960s, then nobody's going to do it. It's way too difficult. So we need to give people the tools so that they can click a few buttons and they get something that resembles a low-carb diet, and then maybe make some additional adjustments once their brain has adjusted to the lack of dopamine. Yeah, I mean, the keto reference is so great too, because there's also the outlier side of it, which I often find myself in. I think naturally I end up being an early adopter on things. I'm very drawn to novelty. And with doing keto, the barrier was I didn't know anybody who was doing keto. So I felt very alone at first. I was interested in something, 
but didn't have accountability, didn't have a support system in place. I had to seek it out. And also when I started that, which was about five years ago, the options five years ago were also quite different than they are today. Specifically for me, because I I don't just do keto, I do a plant-based version of keto. And back then it was like, what, you're not eating meat? Like what else are you going to eat? But over the past five years, the options have broadened, the information, there's studies done about it that you can refer to. I also had to educate myself and find a variety of sources. I mean, it took that time and effort like you're describing. And it's a great parallel, at least in my life right now, because I feel that way about my information diet. Whereas I don't know a lot of people, Alex, who don't use social media. One person in my life comes to mind who's off of it all. And he's doing it for different reasons than I am. So I still feel a sense of loneliness and I have to seek out sources. There aren't even that many because I've read most of the books about social media. I've watched the documentaries and I'm craving more, but we need a more massive adoption. Otherwise, the outliers like myself will be few and far between. And, And you wonder how does a company like you survive if there aren't that many of us? If your company is currently helping the minority how do we do it so that we can both benefit? Because if your company, Other Web, survives, that's beneficial to me. But we have to convince more people to get in it with us. Okay, let me use a few examples, right? What would you think is the market share of Whole Foods in the US? I am never good at these numbers. So I have no idea. I feel like then I I'll should just throw know. a number at Yeah, you. let me hear it. 3.6%. And yet... It seems to have a profound effect on the entire ecosystem. It seems to be one of the most profitable chains out there, right? It is substantially smaller than Walmart or Kroger's or any of those, right? But it has a profound effect, even though it's fairly small. It's not the only sort of health food chain out there, right? You have Sprouts, you have Trader Joe's, you have several of them. So if you add those up, you will probably get to the point where 10 to 20% of the food market seems to be controlled by companies that care about quality. So I think we can get to the point where the information space is at a similar stage, right? And once you're at 10 to 20%, now you have an effect. Now Walmart carries organic food too, right? So that's kind of the goal. And if you look at our numbers so far, we're almost up to trying to figure out what the latest number is. I think we're at 280,000 active users right now, right? Which we launched the apps in November. It's pretty good, right? Do we have a ceiling? Can we ever be as big as TikTok? I don't think we can be as big as TikTok, right? Because if 10 to 20% is our ceiling, then and TikTok is at almost 50% of the US population right now, then obviously they are above where we are, where we are able to get. But still, I think that means we can make a big difference. Question for you on that line, because I was an early adopter with TikTok too. When I first started using TikTok, I barely knew, very similar to keto. (laughs) This is just my pattern. I'm used to being one of the only ones that's doing something and going through that stage of feeling a little weird about it. I mean, TikTok benefited from the pandemic. That's what a lot of the data shows, right? I mean, the timeline for that seemed to be perfect for them. What TikTok would be like today if it weren't for the pandemic, it'd be interesting if we could compare that somehow. But I'm curious If you remember or see through your data, like that period of time where TikTok had a lot of bias against it and somehow they jumped the gap. Is it because the Chinese company behind them 
knew how to tap into our dopamine and create that addiction-like experience? Or was there something else that they did to get over that hump? In some ways, Alex, they're still there because there's a generational gap with TikTok. Gen Z has really adopted it. It took a while for millennials like myself to get into it. But older generations historically have not been that interested in TikTok because they assume it's not for them. So how do you convince people that something is for them that they're assuming isn't, even if it might be in their best interest? If you look at the adoption curve of products, then typically you have the innovators and early adapters, and then you have the masses that follow. So TikTok has been in this phase of just growing among the masses for a pretty long time. So I don't actually think there was any sort of special transition for them when the pandemic started. And I don't think there's any special transition required now. They've been growing essentially at the same pace for many years. And it just seems to you like a transition has occurred because you suddenly notice that it's everywhere. But five years ago, it wasn't. It doesn't mean that there was a jump in their actual usage. Their usage could have been just growing flat, right? There is typically a transition required early on when you go from the enthusiasts to normal people. And so we're about to hit that transition point, I think somewhere around maybe 5 million users. When we'll have to figure out how do we change the product to now appeal to people who aren't as self-aware and they just downloaded the app because somebody they know downloaded the app. That's a different person to try to explain our value to than somebody who downloaded the app because they read an article about information quality and they really wanted to try. It's a different kind of impetus. The person arriving at the app has a different level of knowledge, of self-awareness, of mindfulness, right? But yeah, I don't think TikTok has had any big jumps in the past few years. They've just been growing because they are more addictive than others. And this is why YouTube launched Shorts to try to copy TikTok. This is why Instagram had a moment that less than a day where they actually changed their feed to look exactly like TikTok. And then Kim Kardashian complained about it and they reverted it within six hours, I think, right? But that just shows you everybody knows that what TikTok does is more addictive, but they're trying to replicate it. Replicating is not always as good as the original to the extent that you can call the original good here, right? It's just efficient at doing something bad, but they're good at it. Since you brought up that Kim Kardashian thing, like that's also an interesting thing, right? Like, How is it that Kim Kardashian, does it just show that she has that much influence? Is it that Instagram just values her so much that they'll do whatever she says? Like, I mean, that's a fascinating thing, too, because I've noticed there's like a little battle of TikTok versus Instagram. Once I started using TikTok a lot, I got into this mentality that, oh, Instagram, like I didn't like Instagram anymore. It became on TikTok side. A lot of people in my personal life who are the exact opposite. They're still so pro Instagram. They don't want it to be like TikTok. And so it's interesting, like, is Kim Kardashian just that type of person? Or was there something more at play there? Like, how do these tech companies decide what they're going to do and who influences them to make those decisions? I think each tech company has their own culture. And it's kind of interesting to what extent they vary. Instagram is unique in that they were always much more concerned with a small group of celebrities that are at the top of the food chain, right? This was back from their founding. They think their community managers who reached out to those people and built the personal relationships with them were hired before the engineers. 
Right? So it's a unique tech company in that the tech didn't really come first in some sense. I mean, Systrom can code and Mike Krieger can code, right? But it didn't come first. They were trying to build a group of famous people that somebody will want to follow. That is the ethos of the company. That's how it started. Now, every other social media company has a different ethos, a different culture. Google are the quants, right? They just follow the numbers everywhere. Facebook are the growth hackers who just test everything out and see which version works better. So everybody has their own approach. I don't know which culture wins at the end. I think probably whichever one hasn't been tried before is the one that might work next. Because if you try to emulate the previous one, it's ne never going to work, right? But yeah, that explains why personalities have so much power on Instagram, because that's the ethos of the company. They always try to build personal relationships with the personalities. TikTok, I don't know that anybody has this much power there, right? But I've never used TikTok other than to have a corporate account there and try to run ads. So I don't know anything about it, basically. Well, if you ever want to know, at least I still have some information of it. I mean, I've been so fascinated by it. It certainly caught my attention. And it's interesting too the relationship side of it, because now that I've taken a step back from social media, my whole priority is about relationships. Like I want to connect with people. I don't want to just impress them or influence them or entertain them. And that's why social media, even as a content creator, it doesn't even interest me because that's not part of the culture that I want to be part of. So I guess I feel a little bit lost at this time as a content creator. If anything, podcasting is my culture, but I have a fear that it might not be that way for long, Alex. I mean, even as podcasting grows more influential, I have a concern that it will no longer feel like a fit for me. And then where do I go? Do I even create content at all anymore? You'll probably find whatever comes next after podcasting. But you raise a few really interesting points here that I want to address. The first one is that most companies we call social media have no social component to them whatsoever. It used to be that social media was about you getting on a media that allowed you to be social, right? But TikTok is obviously not social, right? The social component there is whatever is used to determine your feed. But that's it. You don't interact with the person in your feed, right? Instagram, maybe there is a bit more interaction. But even there, I've seen stats that the most popular or I guess the mode of the number of followers that the person has is zero. The vast majority of people have, or it's not that the majority have, it's just the most popular answer, right? I have zero followers. The next most popular is one. So most people just go there to consume. The social aspect is just to determine what is it that they see. It's just a sorting algorithm. It's not really social. Twitter is becoming the same way too, right? And a part of the big success of Twitter was that a lot of influential people would tweet there and a lot of normal people would follow the influential people. That's not a social platform, right? A social platform is what Facebook used to be before Timeline. That was very social. But we don't have much of that anymore. And so I don't know if the social component of social media actually has a future. I don't know if there's demand for it. Intuitively, I would think that there should be. But in terms of who succeeds in the market and who doesn't, I don't see that there is. And so I don't know, when people ask me, what is other web social play? I say, well, we have a comment section. You can comment on stuff, right? You can share outside of the other web. But other than that, I don't even know if we need to add 
this kind of social web of people interacting with each other because I don't know if there's demand for it. If people want it, we'll add it. I think it's obviously beneficial to us if there's a strong social component. But it's not clear to me that the platforms that are succeeding actually have one. Yeah, I feel the same way, but it it does feel peculiar and not intuitive because we're in a loneliness epidemic. I mean, the data around how lonely people are right now is enormous. And as human beings, we historically have thrived on community and connection and support. It doesn't feel like we're getting enough of that right now. So is the addiction side of all this media conditioning us to believe we don't need community support and friendship anymore at the cost of us having enormous suffering. And yet, despite of that suffering, we're still not demanding it. Is that what's happening? Or have the Silicon Valley engineers and the Chinese companies like manipulated us so much that we've kind of going back to the food analogy of like, we love the sugar and we love all of these stimulants so much that we don't even realize we're slowly depriving ourselves of our core needs. Well, I think it's all of the above, right? If we're talking about addiction again, typically one of the things that happens with addiction is people become loners and stop communicating with their friends, right? This happens with every single addiction. And so I think it happens with social media addiction as well. We're seeing a lot of other instances too, like specific really famous CEOs and presidents who would tweet at random times and just try to get attention, right? So that is also social media addiction. These people that I just mentioned, they didn't used to be like this. They didn't used to say things that are that controversial all the time, right? It seems like that's just people craving more likes on Twitter. By the way, I've seen some interesting stats of loneliness based on which social media a person has been using the most. And Twitter ranks number one, the loneliest, most angry people than I think Instagram and a few others. And then LinkedIn is last because LinkedIn is actually social. (laughs) So it seems like there's a ranking of those platforms. Things vary. They're not all equally lonely, I guess. But I don't know what we are becoming society-wide. That's not exactly my field, right? I'm an engineer. I'm just looking at trends. I'm seeing which lever I can try to tweak to improve things. Can't say that I understand psychology that much, but it does seem like there is a weird trend going on in this regard. By the way, podcasting is another interesting trend because it's obviously a counter trend. So to the extent that social media has been making content shorter and shorter, you're seeing a counter reaction with podcasts becoming longer and longer. And I know we've been going for about an hour and 10 minutes right now, right? But Lex Friedman had an episode with Balaji Srinivasan that was seven hours and 36 minutes. So we're pretty far from <laughs> getting to those levels, right? Even Joe Rogan's is north of three hours most of the time and sometimes at five, right? So I don't have time to listen to episodes that are this long, even when I'm a big fan of both people. But that's an odd trend too. I think that is a counter reaction to just everything being bite-sized on the other side. The funny part is it shows that it's not like people crave a particular type of content. People are malleable to some extent. Our tastes are not fixed. It's we're doing whatever we think is best. The question is, what is available to us? Well, that sounds like a perfect statement to wrap up this conversation as much as I could speak for five hours with you because this has been so interesting. I mean, 
this is, I guess, my dopamine fix these days, Alex. Like, I love data and research and I love psychology. I mean, the things that we've touched upon today, they light me up. And this is what keeps me going with the podcast, being able to talk to incredible people like yourself. And the fact that you, as you said, are pulling a lever to try to figure out how to improve the quality of information for people is something just so phenomenal and something that I'm becoming obviously more and more mindful of and wondering too who I want to align with. I mean, even on this podcast, there are people that want to come on the show as guests. And there's a feeling of capitalization there where they are trying to just capitalize on the listeners. And I'm trying to be more and more mindful of that. I wish I had an other web that could help me vet every podcast guest, Alex, that they could come out as quality as you are because I am so in alignment with your mission and just very, very grateful of what you're doing and how you're continuing to make it better and better. I can't wait to try the app version, even though I'm not much of an app user. Perhaps I became less dependent on my phone overall because apps in general have felt a little too monetized for me. So I'm curious, what is it like to use an app like yours that doesn't feel like it's trying to get something from me? I mean, I assume what you're collecting right now is noticing the trends and user behavior and the data and, and what the preferences are. And I'm happy to provide those things if it allows me to get more quality information. I just can't wait to watch your journey evolve. Thank you for being so transparent. I think these type of conversations are incredibly valuable and just seeing what it's like to create something and all the obstacles that you're up against in this world of engineering, in this world of content creation and consumption. There's a lot of hurdles, but you're working through them. And the examples you gave of Whole Foods too, I, that perspective is really valuable. I mean, I've been shopping at Whole Foods for a long time given that I have a preference for organic plant-based food. And I'm surprised at the data because it does seem like Whole Foods is everywhere. And now they're owned by the biggest e-commerce company, I believe statistically. Is Amazon the biggest e-commerce company? In fact, they're almost bigger than everybody else combined. They're close to 50%, I think. That's kind of interesting. I mean, a, a final note, I'm curious, how is Whole Foods in alignment <laughs> with Amazon has been an ongoing question for me. I mean, you certainly benefit as a consumer at the prices have changed at Whole Foods, but I sometimes question how I feel about Amazon owning them. Well, Amazon's point is they have the best distribution model, right? They know how to deliver stuff to your door. And Buying a company that has so many locations in different cities makes that even better because distribution of fresh foods is more difficult than distributions of packaged goods, right? So it was obvious that that's a good acquisition to both sides. Now, can they maintain both missions? I don't know. That's a big question in mergers and acquisitions in all cases, right? Often people ask me, what are your exit plans? Do you want to be acquired? And I have to think about that for a minute because, yeah, but it depends by whom. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be acquired by just about anybody because that will just kill our mission, right? And so it's a difficult question. I do want to mention that we had several different food analogies during this conversation, right? You mentioned plant-based, keto. I want to kind of state that I don't think that one or or the other is particularly objectively good, right? And so I wouldn't use that as a parallel to, well, if you like high-quality content, you must like keto. 
that's not true, right? So I think we have to separate quality from individual preferences. So quality food is quality food. It's not only keto or only plant-based or anything in between, right? It's just not pink slime, right? That's <laughs> the minimal definition of quality food. It's not cancerogenic, right? So our first approach as an information platform is filter out the things that are obviously bad, the empty calories, right? But then people still have preferences and we want to cater to those as much as possible. So just like Whole Foods would cater to the keto person and to the vegan person at the same time, then we have the right wing, the left wing, everything that's good from all sides as much as we can. In fact, we try to go for all modalities. I know we haven't mentioned that much, but we have news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, Wikipedia, search engine. We actually made our own. Don't ask us why. We have some vanity features that we just make because, oh, it's cool. We can build it. So we do. But yeah, we try to create all the different options for people, but filter the junk out because that's a universal. And then we'll see what people like. We just give them as much control as they can and watch what they do. Thank you for stating that too, because historically with content, people can take sides so much based on their dietary preferences. And given now 20 years of being vegan, there's a lot of people that want to say like vegan is the right way and the only way. And over time, I realize I don't align with that anymore because like I said earlier, just because I believe something doesn't mean that it's the right way and the only way and the best way. And right now I'm doing the keto diet, but at one point I did a high carb diet and thought that was the greatest way to eat. You know, <laughs> Like your preferences can change over time. And having the room like you've created with OtherWeb for different types of preferences to be accommodated, I feel like is an incredibly ethical, mindful choice. And another thing I'm very grateful for, and the fact that you took the time to address that too, Alex, speaks to how aligned you are with that mission. You've just blown me away today. I feel like you've shown up so authentically, so present, knowledgeable. It's just a remarkable thing to witness, especially at the stage that you're at with the company. So like I said, I can't wait to see how things evolved. I'm going to go check it out on WeFunder. Are you still raising funds there? It's active on WeFunder? Yeah, it's wefunder.com slash otherweb. So we're there. We're at a little over 200K right now. Oh, great. I'm going to go check that out. Wow. Congratulations. I actually supported Zencaster on WeFunder recently. That was the first time I used the platform and it was a really positive experience. So I will link to the WeFunder campaign. How long does that go on for? Is there a, a timeline? I'm a little confused since I'm new to WeFunder. I don't know exactly how it works. So they typically put a timeline in the disclosures, but the reality is it can be moved at will. And so really it's whenever we decide that it's enough, let's close the round. We tell WeFunder to do that and they send everybody a notification that says you have five to seven business days to change your mind if you want out. Otherwise, the round closes and your money goes to the company, right? So that's typically how their closing works. Right now, I think... In our documents, it says May 31st as the end of the campaign, but I can pull it forward. I can ask them to postpone it by a couple of months. There's no limitations on that. So the reality is people who want to be a part of our company can. Even after WeFunder is over, we can find a way. WeFunder just makes it easier in that everybody gets pulled into the same special purpose vehicle, and then they don't have to sign every single piece of paper going forward. They can all nominate one person. So it's easier for them. It's easier for me to just deal with one representative of the entire 
sort of community investor class, right? That's the big benefit, less paperwork, essentially. But there is always a way. If people want to support our company, we'll find a way. Just give me a call. Well, I'll make sure it's easy for people to get in touch with you. And it's nice to know that if you're listening to this episode and feeling invested in something, it's not just about using it, but you can actually financially back the company, which would hopefully be mutually beneficial in the long run. That's what I'm examining at more and more. Because just like with our food, we vote with our dollar. We know who we can support, what companies that are in alignment with our ethics and our preferences and being able to do that in bigger ways, like supporting a startup can be incredibly rewarding. So I can't wait to check that out after our conversation wraps. Thank you so much, Alex. For anyone who's interested, I'm going to link to otherweb.com in two places. One is right in the description within your podcast player, trying to make it really easy for you. There's a link there. There's also a link to the show notes if you want the full blog post transcript with all the quotes and the references that we've made. This has been a pretty big conversation. So if you want to review anything, it'll be there along with all of the links to make it really easy for you. That's at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Thank you so much again, Alex. This has just been a stimulating conversation that I'm going to be thinking about for quite a long time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.